Hello, how we doing guys? Welcome, welcome. High spirits, high energy on this week's Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod. It's sponsored by Betfair, who we thank for their continued support of this podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. I've got George Ellick with me and we had, for the first time since the 30th of October, a full slate of EFL action, not including the Blackburn-Middlesbrough game that takes place in eight hours or so on Monday night. And we weren't disappointed. Not a single game cancelled, thank goodness for that. And in the 35 games that we had, only six draws. None in the Championship, just one in League One and five in a slightly quieter League Two. It does make me nervous but also full of anticipation for what should be a bumper podcast. George, I've got a lot to say today. And whenever you've been on Quest on the Saturday, you normally come in pretty hot as well. How's things? Should I just leave? I mean, I could make a case for it. I think you've got it in you. <clears throat> not many not many podcasters, I think, could say this, but I think you've got it in you to do a one and a half hour pod on your own. So, I mean, I'm happy to step back. The listeners will be delighted. Maybe one day we'll find out, but not today. I need you. I mean, the championship was amazing, really. So many headlines. We're going to get through them all, but I'm going to start with a, a big one, George, a theme of the day. The bottom five teams in the championship all lost, and the five teams that started the day directly above the bottom five all won. It's becoming like deep blue sea down there at the bottom of the championship. Five teams cut adrift somewhat and one of those teams is Derby County of course uh, they played Nottingham Forest this was one of two early kickoff derbies in the championship that's where we're going to start Forest 2 Derby 1 it strikes me George that the game's key moments came after 15 minutes and 25 minutes one of them was a chance for Tom Lawrence put wide after a really good piece of combination play and then a tactical switch from Steve Cooper around the 25th minute mark from 3-4-3 to 4-2-3-1 with Yates pushing into midfield from centre-back to go next to Colback with Garner playing in an advanced midfield role. We praised Cooper's in-game tactical switches, in-game management and strategy, etc. a few weeks ago. And it was a key factor in them getting a, a big derby win here. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, the, the tactical switch from Cooper certainly had a had a big impact because there wasn't much between the two sides in the opening exchanges. It, you know, often when you see a tactical switch, um, there'll be one in League One. I'll probably talk about later. It's it's because the team who make the switch are being um, really under the cosh, and that wasn't really the case here. It wasn't like Derby came out and with a better side immediately. I thought Forest were probably despite Lawrence's miss, um, still were looking the better. Um, but certainly after that that change from from Cooper, they just moved more and more into the ascendancy. And it was telling that um, the only shot on target that Derby had in the game was, was Tom Lawrence's penalty, which came fairly late on when they were already 2-0 down. Derby were not at their best at all. Forrest, uh, by far the better side. I, I know... Ali, despite you being a um, you know a guy who now tweets about refereeing decisions, um, you're not one who necessarily likes to talk about them too much on the podcast. But there, there probably were a couple as well that could have been fairly significant in the favour of the away side who ended up losing the game. Um, I'd also say that Ravel Morris, not that it changed the the, the game at all, although I did enjoy. Um, it was interesting how many how many comments we had after the Quest um, show with. Uh, you know, the commentators saying they were ugly scenes and I think I called them lively and a lot of fans were like yes this, this is Forest Derby this is exactly what we want to see we want to see fights and red cards 
um, Samba, uh, I think, took that moment in the first half pretty <laughs> Uh, to, to kind of crown himself as the court gesture of the day, um, fighting with Tom Lawrence in the goal, um, goading Ravel Morrison after he'd seen red. But I think the red card was probably harsh. It looked to me like it was a probably a yellow. And then the way that his foot connects with the ball means that the, the foot bounces up and, and it looks a lot worse than it is. But I mean, those are kind of minimal points. I think that the key stories here were Forrest turning up against their arch rivals in a big game, given their ascendancy at the moment. Cooper proving his proving himself yet again as a good tactician. Lewis Graben getting another crucial goal. I think as four yard finishes go, um, the first touch makes that a very impressive strike. And then Brennan Johnson, uh, all about him for the for the for the second goal with a brilliant bit of work to get the ball back. Um, and then just a you know not many uh, players I think would have had the the awareness basically to after playing that ball through to run the, the 40 yards or whatever to, to catch up with play and get on the end of the, the cross and you saw how much it meant to him as well hopefully not the last time we'll see him uh scoring uh for forest but yeah a brilliant day for forest for derby you know it's the end of a, of a pretty decent run important not to get too um caught up in in what it means because you know they came up against a good side and were only beaten by a goal but deservedly so yeah, I think Brennan Johnson, the the story for me overall here, born and bred in Nottingham, of course, and scored in both Derby games against County this season. As you've alluded to there, it could be his last East Midlands Derby for a while. He's heavily linked to Brentford. Uh, an £18 million fee has been discussed as being the sort of key for, for, for any bid to be accepted. Um, his interview afterwards when he was asked fairly directly about his future and it's a it's a tough thing for a player to cope with uh, only what five minutes after a derby game like that it wasn't hugely convincing if you were hoping to hear him um, commit his immediate future to Nottingham Forest he basically said he's enjoying playing games and he just wants to do well uh, but he didn't say who for necessarily um, it would be a shame to see him leave the EFL because for 18 months or so he's absolutely lit it up with Lincoln City, of course, on loan and, and now in half a season with Forrest. The emotions of the week, I think, flooding out a little uh, for Derby and their players at the end, which you can understand because it was a horrific week for Derby County. We spoke about it at length on the Monday pod with Nigel Owen. Uh, but even after that, seeing the administrators, the EFL, uh, Middlesbrough FC and Wiccan Wanderers as well, all making public statements, sort of willy-nilly, one after the other, all of them answering some questions that helped make their case, that helped make their points, in some cases leaving a lot of key questions unanswered as well, all of them just desperate not to be painted as the baddie in a situation that's still live and, and can still be sorted. I, I thought that was really tough just to watch from a neutral's point of view as the week uh, continued and I can only imagine how much it took out of Derby fans. Thankfully, some good news we think on Friday night it was reported that a bid from the Binney family, uh, US-based uh, was made on Friday night. Uh, they reported to understand and accept those issues with Wickham and Borough, which were much talked about last week as being a, a part of any potential deal. But not just that. I think there's been a lot of people missing the fact there are significant liabilities to HMRC and also to MSD Holdings as well. Large, large amounts of money owed there. And there's the issue with the stadium, which is still owned by Mel Morris, is not part of the club. So that will be separate to buying the club. There's a lot still to sort out. But the, the hope is, I guess, that that bid creates something of an auction situation with some of the other potential bidders. Mike Ashley, of course, uh, reportedly being one of them. Uh, and the other derby was in the West. George Bristol City 3, Cardiff City 2. 
Bristol City's first league double over Cardiff since 2003. And I mean, a few pleasing things about this win from a, a city, a Bristol City point of view, I should say. One of them, the character shown quite simply, having gone behind early on in this game and fighting back to win it. Um, but also some genuinely exciting attacking play. And that's something that's been uh, improving on quite significantly over the last few weeks. And, and I, I think just taking a big positive here, because it's not that many weeks since we were feeling a bit down about Bristol City. It's the sort of thing um, that can really improve the atmosphere around a club. Good attacking football and, of course, young players at the heart of it. Chris Martin, not a young player. Uh, his starting spot, well, he's lost it recently to, to Antoine Semenyo. He didn't start the last two games before this one, but he did start here with Vyman and Semenyo and scored two. Vyman, brilliant as always, a sort of Burkamp-esque touch around Flint uh, in the build-up to the first goal. But the emerging star with his second pod mention in two weeks has to be young Semenyo, 22-year-old striker, whose name you need to commit to memory, whose highlights you need to watch from this game and, of course, last week against Fulham as well. Uh, explosive, skillful. Strong with a powerful shot with both feet and growing in confidence game by game. Uh, another big game today. A lot of Cardiff fans pointing him out in the Sunday scouting reports. He got two assists. He hit the post twice. And this is a player who's burst into the side over the last few weeks, having been sort of held back, held back by Pearson, straining at the leash uh, and now very much the big dog. He's only played 750 minutes so far in the league, but running at a cool 0.97 goals and assists per 90 um, really exciting stuff for Bristol City fans. As for Cardiff, you, you keep mentioning they do need to be careful. You know, positives from the start of Steve Morrison's reign, but they're not far off the relegation zone and, and they do look one of the two most vulnerable teams alongside Reading, don't they? So they need to make sure that they're not losing more games like this against teams not far above them if, if they're to finish the season with any comfort whatsoever. I guess the positives were that Tommy Doyle, who's on loan from Man City, he came straight into midfield and set up Collins for the first goal. And Max Waters as well, recalled from loan at MK Dons. Kiefer Moore currently out, his future up in the air as well. A lot of talk about Cardiff maybe Maybe it's worth trying to get a fee for him now rather than losing him for free in the summer. Either way, Collins and Waters both on the score sheet there too. Yeah, it's a key thing to point out here as well, in my view for Cardiff, is that when they went 1-0 up, you know, you're 1-0 up away from home at a, a Bristol City, but Bristol City had lost both Rob Atkinson and Andy King to injury within the first 25 minutes. So at the moment where James Collins scores things couldn't really have been going worse for Nigel Pearson. I mean, that is the the, the half an hour from hell to lose two uh, starting players and to be 1-0 down. Um, so for Cardiff to squander that lead within 45 seconds of going ahead um, was basically unforgivable. And that's my biggest issue. My biggest worry now with with Cardiff is they've got a manager in Steve Morrison who, um, for all you know, he, he's for all his, his undoubted passion, and, you know, he's certainly got Cardiff playing... Uh, a, maybe a style of football that the fans might appreciate a bit more than Mick. Um, the in-game management is something that concerns me. Um, for Bristol City, it's great to see Nigel Pearson finally take the handbrake off because I think there's been an issue in terms of team selection where you've got three players in Vyman, Semenyo and, and Martin. Martin out of those three is the one that the Bristol City fans have had the least time for, I would say, over the past couple of months. Um, but seems to be the one that, that Pearson probably has wanted to play the most. He then took him out of the side, brought him on when they were 2-1 down against Millwall, and he played a part in bringing, bringing them back to win 3-2. Brought him on when they were 5-2 down against Fulham, 
Uh, and then they only conceded one more get one more goal for the second half of that game and brings him into the side here and he scores two goals. So he's managed him well. And I think having, you know, for, for Bristol City, it strikes me as this is the best way that they can play. Play all three of them, be an attacking side. You know, Nigel Pearson's sides, when they're at their best, are attacking teams. When you've got Alex Scott and Callum O'Dowda, a right and left wing back, you know, you've got five players there who can be ultimately good attacking forces in the championship. Yes, you might concede a few goals and I think Pearson's going to have to accept that but it strikes me that the best way for Bristol City to pick up points the rest of the season is by having utilising their best players. And it just so happens that, you know, the best players are seemingly ones who are attack- attacking minded. And I think Semenyo playing almost as kind of, you know, he's basically playing as a 10 with, you know, Vyman and, and, and Martin either side of him, but him probably being the deepest of the three. But for both the goals, they basically played off him uh, is, is very exciting. And, and with Semenyo, you know, whilst yes, he got two assists, but his performance was was about much more than the two kind of layoffs he made for the goals. He was a handful a handful throughout. So, has Pearson finally found a way to manage having having three uh, basically strikers, and that's just playing all three. That's so excited, I must admit, over the last few weeks about Semenyo, um, and that's not to speak of Scott and Masengo and Benarus at times this season as well. Uh, plenty to get excited about, even if it's not going to be a season where they finish in a particularly exciting position. Um, perhaps this could be a solid season of transition for Bristol City. We'll find out in the coming months. Reading 3, Huddersfield 4, George. What happened here? Uh, a crazy game. Um, you know, luckily you tipped up Huddersfield to win on the betting show. I tipped up Danny Ward to score any time, 4-3 win and a, a hat-trick for Ward. So so that went quite well. Um, yeah, a, a bonkers game. And, and I think, you know, for Reading, um, having Lucas Schwal back is, is clearly important. Um, he is, you know, especially having lost Andy Carroll, um, he is far better than anything, they el- than anything else they have in their side. And that was made evident after five minutes uh, when, they, when he took the lead through Joao. Sonani then scored a, a very lucky deflected effort. But the, the defending for, for basically all of Huddersfield's goals was, was so, so poor. It was so easy. And most of Reading's um, as well, I would suggest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but slightly different where Reading's came from effectively Huddersfield's poor shape, whereas the, the goals that Huddersfield scored just was an ineptitude by, except for the last goal from Ward, which was just a quality strike. Just came from a total ineptitude to just defend their own box and to, to, to get to clear the ball. Um, the fact that the, the ball fell toward on both those occasions was so preventable. Um, I would say, and it, it is very difficult with Huddersfield because we are still talking about a side who is sixth in the championship. Um, and we've got to give them due credit for that. They're sixth in the championship, having scored you know 37 goals. Um, when you look at the teams around them, only West Brom has scored fewer, and we know that their success has been built upon a very solid defensive unit. Um, because I, I was going to say it, it was a, a game between two poor sides, but we can't say that about Huddersfield. It does feel, and I know this is kind of um, just a weak narrative, but Huddersfield team to have winnable games pretty regularly uh, at the moment and I think the the fixtures that are coming up are going to make it much more difficult for them to maintain this um, you know they have games against they've got Stoke next up they've got Sheffield United Fulham on the horizon as well um, but here you know they went to a, a Reading side who before this game went to Middlesbrough and put in a pretty resolute pretty laudable defensive performance um, but for whatever reason at home, as we saw in, in the game prior to this, um, defensively, they've been very poor. You know, Michael Morrison's back. You, know, you look at the back four, because he had him and, and Baba Rackman back from um, from AFCON as well. 
Ratman, Morris and Holmes and Yeardham uh, with Southwood behind. You know, for so often this season, we've been speaking about Reading's uh, issues with injuries. Whereas that now, with Liam Moore coming in for Holmes, is probably the only change they would make to make it their strongest back five. Not sure Moore, Lor- not sure Moore is invited anymore. They've they've rather fallen out more in the yes. club. So he might yes. he might just be sitting but, out for the rest of the season. But in terms of indeed, but in terms of their strongest defensive unit mm. from you know when they started the season, that's the only change to what we're seeing now. And then with Lauren and Drinkwater ahead, Swift playing, Joao playing, suddenly this is pretty close to the, the Reading side that their fans hoped a few weeks well, a couple of months ago, before the points deduction was going to take them up. You know, I read an article even after the points deduction saying can Reading still make the playoffs? No. Um this is getting pretty tricky now and, and even though they did show some fight and we saw John Swift back to, to some semblance of form although I'm, I'm reading Reading fans are getting pretty frustrated by his his body language and his perceived lack of um, you know d- desire to, to well at least desire shown on the pitch uh, it's another to, to lose a game 4-3 at home to score basically to score three goals at home and to lose 4-3 is pretty unforgivable and um, again I'm saying it again I'm, I'm surprised that we're sitting here and Vyko Paunovic, there hasn't been a uh, a corner flag picture tweeted by the Reading account yet because um, that there just seems little reason to to believe that he is going to solve this. And it feels to me at the moment like Reading's best hope of staying up this season is that Peterborough, Barnsley, and Derby continue. Well, not Derby, but Peter and Peterborough and Barnsley at least continue to to not pick up any points. I'm going to focus on the positives, and that is what you mentioned, the, the players coming back, which means that the starting eleven looks very different to, to how it looked two weeks ago. Um, not just Roman and, and Yedom coming back from AFCON, although those are huge returnees because the fullback areas looked incredibly weak before. Yeah, Hoyler had had a, a short-term injury. He was back on the bench. Uh, and the big man up front, George, can you do what you did on the betting show when I mentioned Lucas Joao, who came back? Joao, wow, wow, wow. Yes. So nice. Great to see him. Good goal as well. And Puskas, maybe, maybe could develop a bit more confidence here. His first goal in in the league anyway since April, over 1,400 minutes of football played without one. uh, And it was took fairly nicely and and he set up Joao's goal as well. So uh, I'm going to focus on the positives. I think that the horrendous performances we've seen over the last three weeks in which Reading have found various and creative ways of losing football matches, uh, that can be... A thing of the past, at least. Uh, having said that, a trip to QPR next. Not easy at all. Uh, Huddersfield, eight games unbeaten, four wins and four draws in that time. They they switch formations here. Pieper, uh, with a long-awaited first start. He's been out for a long time. One of their key men last season. Uh, one of their big bright spots, you might remember. The right back or right wing back. Uh, I wondered what they were going to do with Sorba Thomas and Pieper when Pieper returned. As it was, it looked fairly 4-2-3-1 to me uh, with Thomas uh, a bit further forward, fewer defensive responsibilities for sure. And Pieper as a more sort of standard right back here. It certainly didn't help them in terms of their defensive structure, which looked all at sea at times, uh, you have to say. But what a hat-trick from Danny Ward. Uh, Huddersfield's first hat-trick since Danny Ward scored one uh, back in 2014 against Amazing, Watford. That, isn't it? Uh, a lot of time between now and then, but uh, really well taken. Of course, he does a lot outside of scoring goals, but it's nice when he scores them as well. Sweet right foot half volley. He's a left-footed player. He scores a lot of headed goals as well. So, uh, again, another big, big positive for Huddersfield. Bournemouth nil, Hull one. Uh, this was a bit of a battering in the first half. Bournemouth just not able to get the goal. Not able. It, it didn't sit for them. Their finishing was poor. Solanke in particular with a, a header wide that you'd expect him to score. And then in the second half, 
completely different. Hull gaining confidence uh, from going in level and Bournemouth only having two shots in the second half, even with Hull taking the lead uh, halfway through it. A, a, a poor response, you have to say, from Bournemouth to going behind, but they defended very, very well. And uh, the winning goal scored by Longman, George, maybe a bit under the radar, his performances this season. Currently playing in a, a left wing back role. Last season on loan at Wimbledon from Brighton, his parent club. He was a, a sort of wide forward, very industrious, not an amazing goal scoring record, but brought a lot a lot else um, to their play. Stepping up a level, doing a job for Hull here, scoring a good uh, winning goal. Who would you like to focus on here? Because you've got, you got Bournemouth who... Started 15 games unbeaten, had 37 points, and since then, only 12 in their last 12. Uh, or you've got Hull, who have been taken over by Turkey's answer to Simon Cowell uh, and had two incredible wins to nil against a team <coughs> in second and third this week. Um, I, I'll, I'll do a bit on both, I think, if that's OK. okay. Um, I'll, I'll be short on both. Um, yeah, because I, well, I don't know what you do when you're at Quest. I'm um, going to be long but, on Hull, so just, okay, just I'll to do, warn I'll, you. I'll do Bournemouth then, because I think often my, my role in this podcast is to uh, shift the narrative and say, hold on, let's not get carried away about a, a bad result. And I think that's the case here. Um, a, a half-time on... Um, whenever I'm on Quest at half-time in the three o'clock games, I always do kind of a sweep of the games and see if there are any statistical anomalies. And obviously with, with the Bournemouth game... Uh, it was pretty clear to see that they'd been well on top. So I had a look through kind of Bournemouth Twitter. Yeah, 15 shots to two it was uh, at half-time in Bournemouth's favour um, with Baxter making some crucial saves, Marconda taking the woodwork. And I um, so I had a look and some of the <laughs> the tweets and, and bits and bobs from, from Bournemouth fans, you'd have thought Bournemouth were 4-0 were up. They were all so enamoured with the performance, praising the style of football, praising the, the performance of individual players, saying the goal was coming. Um, so for them to end up losing the game 1-0 and to put in such a poor second half performance is obviously going to be very frustrating and difficult for them to take but having said that you know, this is probably a case where on four out of five occasions where when this when that first half is played Bournemouth take the lead and, and the game is very very different it does feel like they are massively on the receiving end of, of variance here because at the beginning of the season they went on that ridiculous run where they didn't concede a single goal uh, in the first half. They were winning games so comfortably, barely conceding anything. And now they're probably on the receiving end of having run pretty hot. They're now in games where they probably deserve at least something. They are coming away with nothing. And it's important not to get too carried away on that. You know, even even against Luton time before, having come back from 2-0 down to, to draw two all only for a, a very, very late low XG strike in injury time to, to lose the game. Um, I would urge patience for them. It's, it's you know, for us covering it, that top end of the championship is going to be pretty interesting now because it does feel like Fulham are, are well and truly gone. You know, yes, they're only eight points clear of Bournemouth, but you can add another point to that given the goal differences of 48 and 19. So that gap is is, is widening uh, pretty quickly. But, the you know, the, the race for second is is well and truly on I would still say that Bournemouth are the most likely to finish there um, and it's a case and Scott Park is very good at this you know he is I think sometimes it's probably a, a strength sometimes it's a weakness but I would say that his level-headedness and his, his understanding that you know bad moments don't necessitate change is, is one of his strengths and I'm sure we'll see Bournemouth picking up results soon. I think narrative shifting is one of your strengths and never a weakness. Thank you. So there you Thanks. go. So Hull City have new ownership. The Alam family are out. And that's been something that the fans have been wanting for a long time. It's a, clearly a very positive thing 
for the majority of the fan base, I think. And the new owner is, well, quite the character. Uh, if you read his name in English, it's Akun Ilikali. If you listen to the YouTube video where with the title How to Pronounce That Name Correctly in Turkish, it sounds very different. I'm going to run that in here. Acun Ilıcalı. Acun Ilıcalı. Acun Ilıcalı. You can imagine my expression when just before going on BBC Radio 5 Live, I, I just quickly Googled that to see, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be, <laughs> I wanted to be true to, to Ajuna Lajilla's uh, native tongue. <laughs> but I also didn't want to sound incredibly strange on, on national radio. Anyway, I bottled it. I said Ajun and then I said Ilikali. So I went 50-50 there. Regardless, <laughs> the reason he's uh, Turkey's answer to Simon Cowell, if you haven't seen this, he has done very well for himself. Basically, um, getting the rights to show shows such as Survivor, Dancing with the Stars, Deal or No Deal in Turkey. And not only has he syndicated them um, to the tune of much money, he also produces and presents <laughs> those shows. So write the theme tune, sing the theme tune. This guy's pretty lively. I think we can all agree. It's interesting that he's known as the Simon Cow of uh, Turkey, because in my book, I think he's actually the Ali Maxwell of uh you know get makes the content creates the content hosts the content owns the content your words are not mine <laughs> that's where some of the similarities end because you're not that rich <laughs> <laughs> he, he's had the dream start right uh where they've beaten second and third place teams in the space of six days resounding win against blackburn rovers at home uh, and then this in, in this brilliant performance backs against the wall for certain moments and then winning the game in the second half against Bournemouth. Couldn't have started any better, right? So there was some eyebrows raised, albeit this had already been reported during the takeover, on Sunday night when David Burns, who's excellent local reporter, uh, tweeted that reports from Turkey saying that Grant McCann has gone at Hull City and Shota Arvaladze is incoming. No confirmation yet, but looks like the first big call of the new regime. I suspect the decision will have been made before the last few games. Now, uh, various other reporters confirmed that. Uh, I don't think, unless I've missed it this morning, it's actually been officially announced by the club yet. But essentially, McCann out, Shota Arvaladze in at Hull. Now, Arvaladze, many of you will know, some of you may not, one of the great Georgian footballers of all time. Uh, him and King Kladze probably fighting for that belt. An incredible goal scorer in the 90s and 2000s, um, particularly for Dynamo Tbilisi, for Trabzonspor in Turkey, uh, for Ajax, for Rangers, of course, and for RZ as well. Uh, since then, he's worked for Louis van Gaal, uh, Dick Advocat, and Ronald Koeman as an assistant, so very Holland-based, you'd say there. Um, but he's obviously got links to Turkey as well. That's where uh, Jun Iljali knows him from. And as a manager, he won the Uzbekistan Super League and the Cup with Paktakor Tashkent in 2019 and 2020 before leaving in December 2020, just over a year ago. So the obvious first response is, mate, you've bought the club, you've watched your team beat the sides in second and third, deservedly, without conceding a goal, and now you're moving on the manager immediately. And you can see why that feels harsh. I suppose it's a bit of a moot point in a way if the decision had been made before then. It's not like he's watched them play and gone, not good enough. He'd already <clears throat> made his mind up to all intents and purposes. That's so, what's been reported. 
shot at Avaladze tweeted on the 13th of November 2021 a picture of him sitting in front of his laptop with a few papers and a few pens preparing for the English exam and a few, and a few new challenges. Oh, so, so always learning then. That would suggest to me that Shotter has known about this for quite some time, and I'd guess Grant McCann probably has as well. That would suggest to me that Shotter has quite the growth mindset. But yes, <laughs> I agree with you. This has been lingering over Grant McCann for a few months. And I've got some thoughts. Um, long term, if this new owner wants to build Hull, as has been rumoured, if not strongly reported, uh, into a club filled with or certainly containing a lot of Turkish players uh, and clearly managers that he's friendly with, already has links with, that's his prerogative to do. I hope that the fans have their eyes open on that front and are okay with it, uh, and not just because they're so keen to get rid of the Alams that anyone feels better. I don't have an issue with it inherently as long as it is done well on a footballing level, which we haven't seen very often before. It's fine as long as you're signing the right players, the right fit, hiring the right manager, doing this in a way that doesn't upset the apple cart, ruin morale or balance or whatever those intangible things are within clubs. You don't want to make it hard to put a good atmosphere in place by changing too much too quickly. I, I think, George, my gut is slightly concerned in, in the short term here for Hull City. I think there's a bit of a risk here. In fact, more than a bit of a risk. I think there's quite a large risk. If Arvaladze comes in and doesn't get a grip of things straight away, then they're they're not you know they're not safe. They're ten points above the relegation zone. No one needs to tell Hull fans what it can take to be relegated if you have a bad second half of the season after what happened two years ago. And I think there's been maybe because of that a bit of an unfair sense of Grant McCann's not good enough as a manager at Championship level. I think that slightly condescending sense, a bit like we spoke about with Mowbray a couple of months ago, of Grant McCann, there's there's a there's a ceiling on where he can take Hull, and it's probably where they are now. So in order to progress, they need a new manager. And I'm not sure I could disagree with that more, and not because I'm willing to say Grant McCann is a Premier League manager or a top part of the Championship manager, but I think because I don't think of managers like that. I don't pigeonhole them into positions of the footballing pyramid. What you can say about Grant McCann is... In championship terms, one brilliant half season two years ago, one horrendous half season, I think it was one win in 20, um, some mitigating circumstances with the departures of Grzycki and Bowen, of course, who were two brilliant players for the level. Um, a magnificent promotion last season in League One, where it wasn't like they just went out and bought a ton of amazing players to blitz the league, but they did do that. And after a poor start to this season, playoff chasing form over the last 12 games. I think most importantly as well, players running through brick walls with him even those playing out of position at the moment due to injuries particularly at wing back quite a thin squad that doesn't scream quality particularly at the top end of the pitch albeit you have players like Lewis Potter if you just look at the last week of performances key players doing absolutely everything for their manager to pick up points Honeyman is probably the epitome probably the poster boy of this now you have to be very careful that in making this change, those players are going to stay fully motivated to, to work hard and fight for shot at Arvaladze over the manager that they've been through a lot with, they've won 50% of their matches with over the last 18 months. Because if they're not motivated to the maximum, which I think they are right now, and picking up points to move away from the relegation zone, is there enough quality in that squad to be okay anyway 
even with one or two you know big Turkish additions in the next week or so I, I don't think there is necessarily so I hope I'm wrong I hope Shota Arvaladze with his growth with his growth mindset and his English is a, is a genius manager that can take Hull to the next level but my gut feeling right now is this is a big risk and there's a chance Hull finish closer to the relegation zone than they are right now if they do it I, I have the last thing I've seen a few suggestions that this is like people will always bring up Southampton, won't they? Like, well, Southampton sacked Adkins when he'd done nothing wrong <laughs> and brought in Maurizio Pochettino, and look what happened there. I th- well, I think you've summed up my short-term concerns very well. And if you look, you, you know, if you look at the actual squad itself, you take someone like Jacob Greaves, you take someone like Keen Lewis Potter. You know, these are two guys whose whose only senior manager ever has been Grant McCann. Two guys who probably owe their career to an extent you know obviously their talent plays a big part but this is a manager who has taken them out of the academy and given them brought them into the first team as teenagers and entrusted them to a great degree and they're playing well at the moment you've got the likes of Deshaun Bernard and Nathan Baxter two key players for Hull who've signed on loan at Hull knowing who their manager is going to be having been sold the club by a manager Longman in in the same boat this is given how well results are going at the moment, given that we know how the, you know, how the mood is going to be in the camp, I I have, I'd be amazed if the players are anything but incredibly disappointed about the prospect of this happening. Long-term, there's a bigger issue in my mind, and that is why Shota Avaladze? I mean, okay, he was a a brilliant footballer who had an amazing goal-scoring record, who played, you know, the closest he played to Hull was Rangers. Um, Fine. His managerial career is pretty disappointing. He landed two fairly big jobs off the back of presumably his playing career at uh, Trabzonspor and at Maccabee Tel Aviv. Both lasted, I think, less than a year after he was sacked due to poor performances. He had a very good spell in charge of Uzbek side Paktahor, Paktakor. And there he you know, took a, a side into the Uzbek. Um, you know, He won the Uzbek Cup, he won the Uzbe- Uzbekistan Super League. You know, how do we approach that in terms of a um, a success? You know, it, it's impossible to rank that. I would rather probably look at his previous coaching career at, at, at leagues or at least clubs that we know more about and see that things didn't go particularly well. I do not for a second think that he has landed the job because he is someone who, whose who's clear managerial and coaching CV suggests that he's a big upgrade, unlike someone maybe like Pochettino, although I know that he, I think, had been sat from his, his previous post before. It... It seems to me like the first decision made by the new owner isn't based on any smart footballing decision at all. Now, that I might be proven wrong, but that is the biggest red flag for me here. The biggest red flag. It's completely ignoring the needs of the squad. It's completely ignoring um, what is going on in the pitch at the moment. He's made a decision three months ago. And he is sticking to it. We are going to look incredibly stupid here if Grant McCann is, is pictured holding a new shirt, having signed a three-year three year contract this afternoon. If that happens, then Achun, I apologise. But if reports are, are, are to be believed, I am. And I know that Hull fans are, are so happy to be done with the Alams. But I, I, yeah, I am pretty nervous about what lies ahead based on this first big decision. Welcome to the Running of the Bulls podcast with Ali Maxwell and George Ellick, where red <laughs> flags are being flashed at us. 
<laughs> and they're catching our attention. We are going to have to zip the rest of the championship between us, I'm afraid. Coventry 1, QPR 2, George, tell me about it. This was a massive game. I mean, this was arguably the biggest game in, in the championship on the um, over the on Saturday afternoon and uh, a, a big, big win for QPR at Coventry. You know, Coventry don't lose too many games at home and brilliant for Albert Adoma to be the man who gets the uh, the winner. Albert, who, of course, is a, is a huge QPR fan. I think Willock's probably the story here, as I mentioned on Quest. Um, it, it felt like the loss of Dieng and... Um, Chair was going to be pretty big at AFCON, but Marshall's been an inspired signing. He's been a brilliant um, understudy for Dieng. To be honest, his performances probably mean it's going to be difficult for, for Warburton to drop him, although I'm sure he will. Uh, and then Willock as well with a couple of assists here. He's stepped up to the plate massively uh, since Chair's been out of, the, out of the side. They've scored six goals. Willock has either scored or assisted five of them. Um, a brilliant goal from Shipley uh, to get Coventry back into the game. Um, on the balance of play, Coventry will feel very aggrieved having lost this one because they created the, the more chances certainly over the, over the course of the game. Matty Godden um, was a big miss. He was out due to getting appendicitis, so having to have emergency surgery, which suggests he could be out for at least a few a few weeks, which is a big blow because he's been the main man for um, for Coventry with Jokeresh. Uh, his hot streak early on in the season coming to a bit of an end. Um, so. I don't think Coventry lost a great deal in defeat here, but for, for QPR, it's a, it's a huge three points. And it means that Coventry are now scrambling to, to keep pace to, to get in the playoffs, but Coventry, but QPR putting themselves in the box seat to make the most of Bournemouth's poor runner form. Mate, you know, ever since we called him nine-goal gyok, he hasn't scored in the league. That's because he loves he loves the nicknames <laughs> he so loves much. The name so much. That he just wants to be nine gold yacht forever. Ugh, Willock was so good here again, wasn't he? Um, showing all parts of his game: an assist in transition, really nice through ball with the outside of his foot, and then an assist from out wide as well, uh, where he loves to drift and combine with wide players, curling onto the head of a doma. Brilliant to see. That's twenty nine wins in QPR's last fifty league games, doing sensationally well. Mark Warburton and his team, and I'm excited to see where they go from here. West Brom. Needed this. 3-0 win against Posh. Comfy as you like, for the most part. Uh, one-sided as you like is probably Eventually. the best. Probably the, <laughs> yeah, probably the best way of saying it. 27 shots to one uh, in the end, the shot count. But at first, and certainly at half-time, it looked like Baggy's finishing woes would continue. And then they got the bounce they needed. Some set-piece pinball gave them the, the lucky ricochet they needed. Uh, and Furlong stabbed home. DK started this one, um, caused some problems, but missed some chances. So um, more of the same, really, in terms of West Brom attackers. Um, but you have to hope and think, if you're into psychology, that there might be a bit of confidence surging back into the veins of these baggies attackers. Good finishes from Grant and Diangana to ice the game. 2-0, 3-0, Robinson off the bench and gave a real big creative impact uh, and a good, comfortable home win for West Brom. It's a tough one. Peterborough's performance was described as the worst that that anyone has seen, uh, not that anyone has seen, that a particular West Brom had, uh, fan had seen when he tweeted us on Sunday. I know the posh fans understandably feeling pretty downhearted at watching this game. Um, this isn't the one to get really worked up about, but it, it's certainly fair to say that we have to see more from them. Uh, and then Stoke 2, Fulham 3, George. This one, a really high quality affair. 
Uh, Mark, who's a Stoke fan in our mentions on, on Sunday, said it's probably one of our best performances all season. Just a shame it came against Fulham. I think that kind of sums it up. Fulham executing well in the final third to the tune of three good goals. And Stoke had scored some crackers of their own. Lewis Baker with his first goal for them from range. And DiMaggio Wright-Phillips scoring in the first minute. Or DiMaggio Back-Phillips. <laughs> Does that work? DiMaggio Back-Phillips. It works unbelievably well. <laughs> Okay. It works so well. Um, a, good, a good goal scored by him. I guess for Fulham, uh, the, the the main headline, other than they're still really good, they're eight points clear, they're going to win the league, is big Roddy Muniz, who's had to wait fairly patiently for Mitro to miss a game and stop scoring. Um, and it was no Mitro here, but no problem because Muniz smashed in a beautiful strike in the first half to level things. Uh, I say the first half, I think it was the second minute, wasn't it, to equalise? mm Fabio Carvalho was dancing around um, Bobby Reed with a really nicely struck winner as well. So um, a, a great, great away win for Fulham. What an incredible few weeks they've had. That There's nothing new there necessarily. Stoke, uh, impressive in defeat. Uh, what about Birmingham 2, Barnsley 1, George? It feels like uh, more interesting things happening not on the football pitch than on the football pitch. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll mention the football here and it was... <clears throat> I mean, it wasn't a vintage performance from Birmingham. Um, they went 2-0 up and were pretty cosy. And as soon as they went 2-0 up, the, the focus shifted from what was going on on the pitch to, to off-pitch issues. Uh, obviously, there was a protest before the game as well. The, the BSHL out movement. Search the hashtag on Twitter if you want to see just how strongly uh, Birmingham fans feel about this. Um, yeah, is in, is in full swing. And um, I was you know, taken aback to see the, I mean, obviously in a very happy way to see the reaction from the chat that I had with Colin about on Quest on Saturday, um, because I hadn't quite realised the strength of feeling amongst Birmingham fans about how they feel their cause is being misreported effectively. Now, I think it's quite, if you, if you ask anyone with a passing interest in the championship, they will know that there are issues at Birmingham. But I think if you ask them what the issues are, they'd probably you know, put them, lump them in with Derby and lump them in with, with Reading as supposed crisis clubs. And that isn't necessarily the case here. Um, and it was interesting. I, I read the the whole meeting between, um, before the game, there was a meeting between the fans and, and the, you know, the sports trusts with um, a director, Edward Zheng, um, the CFO as well, and Craig Gardner, who's a technical director. And it was interesting to note that, that the technical director, Craig Gardner, it kind of felt like he was he was fed to the lines because he spoke by far the most. Um, and that in itself, I think, shows a chronic lack of understanding from, I assume, Zheng himself, the director who is in charge of, of, of you know, representing the board here, uh, of what the issues are at hand. And that's kind of what I wanted to get across. This isn't a case of either um, Birmingham massively overspending and putting the club at risk. It's also not a case of Birmingham fans just demanding that that they get their checkbook out, even though Lee Boyer has spoken in with the recent part up being frustrated by the lack of support he's maybe got in the transfer market. This is a case more of Birmingham fans being fed up of having a an owner or owners or an ownership structure or an ownership group where they basically don't understand who owns the football club or why they are in the football club, or what their ambition is for the football club, or what they want to do with the football club, or why they bought Birmingham, or what they're trying to do. That then filters into a lack of communication, a chronic lack of communication between the club and said owners, who they don't really know who they are. And they just have basically seemingly puppets who are brought out, Zheng 
being one of them. Um, we had Dong, the previous um, CEO as well, being being a former one who seemed to meddle in, in team tactics too and team selection. There's no direct line between the club and the fans. There's no, they've never said what the ambition is. They've never said what they want to do. Craig Gardner for the first time said, from his point of view, that he thinks they'll be competitive in the championship in three years' time. So it's basically survival this year. Next season's basically a a, a massive change of um, of personnel, and then the season after is when he can make his mark. And, and the reason for, for that fans, being that they they haven't underinvested, but they've spent money no. so badly, like a few other owners in the championship, and that's why they're now hamstrung by FFP constraints of their own making. Exactly, but that's what was interesting is is having wheeled out Craig Gardner to basically argue their case. He ended up basically making the criticisms of the way the club has spent their money, which is part of the reason why Birmingham fans are so frustrated. You know, he said it's not the players' fault, but there are players out there on these massive contracts that, you know, it's poor recruitment, effectively. You've then got the stadium issue where half the st- half the stadium's closed and it's falling apart and there's no timeline as to when that's going to be sorted. It, it it's, it's bad ownership is effectively what the Birmingham fans are so angry about. And it's, you know, we always say, or everyone always says, not just us, that football owners should be custodians of the club for the fans. And that couldn't be further from the truth here. Birmingham fans feel like the club is being taken further and further away from them with no sign of, of what the plan is itself. And to wheel out a technical director to say, yeah, you know, we're going to get it right now. We're going to we're going to sign the right players and this stuff. It, it's it's. It's not even the tip of the iceberg. It is the melting drop falling off the iceberg that is part that is the reason uh, thinking that is going to appease the Birmingham fans. They've they said in the meeting that they're gonna they they are looking to appoint a CEO who is gonna have nothing to do with 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 football business. But that in itself was said in such a weird roundabout way, so non-committal that I find it hard to believe it. Um, having you know in the last month or so, having read a lot about this and spoken a lot about this. It's it's a very unique situation that is so different to the normal issues we see between football clubs and their fans. Um, and whilst they may not be in the same situation as Derby, as being on the brink of extinction, um, their plight still deserves coverage because this means of ownership is not the way that football clubs in this country are meant to be are meant to be run. Well, and. If anyone makes a comparison and says, well, it's it's nothing, it's not as scary as the Derby situation currently, that's true. There's no need to compare the two. It doesn't mean that you can only mm-hmm. talk about one. And quite okay. frankly, and you, you, we obviously have to be careful and we don't want to over-exaggerate, but there are two clubs in particular, Birmingham and Reading, whose futures I'm incredibly concerned about on the most existential level over the next few years. And I hope that those those fears aren't founded and don't come to pass. But looking at Derby and looking at some other clubs, uh, there are certain trends that you can follow. Um, and pff, they terrify me. They absolutely terrify mm. me. Uh, the positive on the pitch, on El Hernandez, I mean, his signing felt like, oh, yeah, OK. You know, given, given how poor Birmingham have been... Going forward uh, in the last few weeks, and given that they they've already picked up enough points to be relatively comfortable without hugely comfortable, um, Hernandez felt like a big injection of quality, of speed, of skill, and directness. Um, match fit as well, having played a fair bit for Borough in the last few months, so uh, a really good 
acquisition from them uh, and scoring a, a really good goal that showed all of those traits in this game. Stephen tweeted a Sunday scouting report saying both teams terrible, one a bit worse than the other, one going down, one going nowhere, which I think sums things up. At some point, we will talk a bit more in depth about Barnsley's situation. Um, they are also unhappy with their ownership and the way that their club's being run. Uh, again, a, a different situation to the one that we're talking about here, but um, with its own uh, merits, which we'll take on in the next few weeks. Sheffield United 2-0 Luton, much more comfortable than I thought this one would be. Luton are are certainly known as one of the most awkward opponents because of their uh, impressive structure out of possession, their intensity of their press, um, their midfield uh, is always snapping at your heels. And you, you looked at Sheffield United with Connor Harahan and Norwood, um, you know, not those sorts of players that cover ground hugely quickly, not the most physical central midfielders. And you thought there's a chance Luton could uh, overrun them a little bit and win the physical battle first and foremost. Wasn't the case at all. Um, mm. You know, there was a, a red card for Reese Burke after an hour, but Blades were already 2 0 up at that point. They finished the game having taken 25 shots to Luton's four, having two thirds of the ball. Um, just a really, really good dominant win. And, and important uh, after a, a, a bad week, you have to say, that the defeat by Derby last weekend was followed up by a bit of a shocker in midweek, giving up a 2 0 lead to draw with 10 man at Preston North End. That's behind them now. Um, they've got above Luton with this win. They need to keep going. Uh, blades and, and not have too many of those little week-long blips that they had before this one if they are to reach the playoffs. The performance of Brewster, a real positive. I think it's three goals in five for him. Proper poacher's goal, the sorts of goals that we saw him score for Swansea in that exciting loan spell a couple of years ago. Uh, good win for them. George, you have the opportunity to choose between Swansea 1, Preston 0 or Blackpool 1, Millwall 0. Gosh, what a choice. Mm. Uh, I'll go for Blackpool 1, um, Millwall 0. Truffle pig, truffle pig, truffle, truffle, truffle pig. He's a pig that searches for truffles and goals. i got the feeling you, you maybe wanted me to choose the other one then. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did. I'll be honest, I did. We, you know, in looking at this, we have to caveat the result massively uh, in terms of players that Millwall are missing. Um, Gary Rowett spent the first half of the season complaining Rightly so. I'm not having a go at him about how many players they had missing. It looked like they were finally getting all their players back. And now you look at the side on on Saturday. Um, you know, they've sold. I mean, you can't be too um, sympathetic when they they sold Matt Smith to Salford during a time where um, they they needed bodies. Um, but Smith, of course, was out due to not playing for the club anymore. That normally will do it. Um, Shea Yojo out, Jed Wallace out, George Saville out, Ryan Leonard out. You know, these are all players who, when they're fit, start automatically, basically, um, with maybe the exception of Ojo, who's been in, in and out of the side. So um, they came into this with uh, a, a bit of a task. Um, it was a game of, of fairly few chances. Good to see Tyler Bury coming off the bench for Millwall. He's someone who hopefully will take this opportunity that he's now going to get because of the injuries at Millwall to prove himself. And um, and also interesting to know how, how Ollie Burke's going to get on. You know, a player who has really struggled over the last few seasons now playing for a club where he doesn't have about six players in front of him um, to play that role. And, and surely he'll get some, some game time too. But yeah, for Lavery, it was a, a lovely finish. Um, you know, he's someone who... Hasn't necessarily been at his best post-injury, um, but showing signs now, signs now of coming back to the boil. I think that having that trio of, of Lavery, Medine and Yates is so important for Blackpool because there's always that competition for places. And as soon as one of those players doesn't perform, the, the other one is, is waiting to come in. Um, and 
that you know they're still looking for that centre midfielder. Blackpool, Connolly again, normally a right back playing at centre midfield alongside Dougal. Um, they need to, um, you know, with the Brannigan deal seemingly off, they need to find someone who they can bring in. But but for Blackpool, yeah, really kind of a regulation, I guess, um, win over over Millwall, who are who themselves were depleted. Yeah, they've been reported to be in for Ebu Adams of Forest Green, who who's about to I say about to later today will take the pitch at Afcon for Gambia against. Guinea, so they might be waiting for Ibu to come back home. Um, that would be an interesting signing, someone that we've wanted to see play above League Two for the last few years or so. Um, it could see Tyler Bury come on for Millwall, wasn't it? So exciting for Hartlepool in the first portion of the season before tearing his hamstring. Uh, such a speedy player and and direct as well, skillful. We saw that um, Millwall's you know biggest sort of flash of, of interest in this game was a Bury run and shot tipped wide by the goalkeeper. Um, that's why I'm not that keen on the Oliver Burke signing, to be honest, because I sort of feel like Millwall have done pretty well to bring through some academy products in the last few years. Slightly underappreciated, I think, what they've done with the likes of McNamara and uh, Mitchell in midfield. Uh, I see no reason why Bury shouldn't have a shot at that. Uh, and yet, mm. Burke's profile as pacey striker um, with very little to show for himself over the last few years and presumably a much chunkier wage uh, seems to be well, that will certainly block some Bury minutes, which I would be sad about. And obviously he now can't go on loan anywhere else apart from Hartlepool because he's already played for two teams this season. Anyway, Swansea 1-0 against Preston. Uh, this was a banger from Ryan Manning uh, for the goal. And, I mean, it's weird to look at this negatively, but isn't it amazing how for all of Swansea's passing, most of their goals seem to be bangers from Manning, or from Pirot, mm. or from Patterson. They seem to score, and I should have the stats in front of me, and I don't. They seem to score a large portion <laughs> of their goals from outside the box, which for a team, I, I suppose in, in one sense, not that surprising, because teams are going to just sit in uh, and 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 ask them to break them down. It's true that they're not creating a lot of chances from within the penalty area, and that's uh, a bit of an issue. I think if you look at the percentage of a team's shots from inside and outside the box, Swansea are... Um, skewed outside up there with with the rest of the teams in the league, and that's Peterborough and Barnsley. So still not really clicking going forward. A lot of talk about recruitment and players coming in to to fit Russell Martin's style of play better. Uh, I've got the stats up as I was speaking, uh, and they've scored the second most goals from outside the box in the championship this season, even though they've only only five teams have scored fewer goals total than them. So that kind of sums it up. Great strike from Manning, who's a a brilliant player, uh, and Preston's. Well, the the Ryan locomotive, as they're calling it, um, just slowing down somewhat here. I think we're quite excited about loan signing Hannes Wolf, uh, Swansea, getting yes. from uh, Gladbach. He was a, a Red Bull guy, um, seems to love a, a press, uh, seems to have good technical quality. I think he suffered from injuries recently, um, but smart people seem to think he could be quite good if he's fit and motivated. So that's something to look forward to for Swans in that sort of dual 10 position uh, where Patterson has completely fallen out of favour bit of a contract dispute looks like he'll be moving on which is a shame uh, he's obviously trying to tick off every championship club before he retires and <laughs> in a way I respect it George the League 1 automotion automotion automatic promotion <laughs> battle the League 1 automotion battle looks really exciting um, more so or the title battle much more exciting than the championship and League 2 uh, Wigan currently at the very top and they've got four games in hand over a couple of teams and two over others. Uh, they beat Jills this weekend. Uh, Gillingham didn't have a shot in the first half, and it was 2-0 to Wigan at half-time. Game over. But it wasn't. 
but it wasn't. Uh, but Wigan then it were was. brilliant first half. Um, yeah, Wigan, Wigan were a great first half. They haven't been in great form recently. Uh, my favourite stat, as I said on Quest, is that in their last nine games, seven have been won by a single goal. All seven they've come out on top of. The other two have both been draws. Wow. So um, is that sustainable, Ali? That's the question. My head tells me probably not. That's but, funny because on Quest you said, is that sustainable? I don't know. And I thought, mm, I think you could have had an opinion from you there. Well, I was going to say, I was gonna say is, is that sustainable? I think probably not. But it wouldn't surprise me if it goes the other way and maybe they start beating teams more comfortably rather than actually just losing games. Super um, sustainable. We'll Are you happy being um, um, sort of characterised as Stato on the Quest show? Because that was a real theme of, of Saturday night's show and one that you very much fed into by sort of making a gag about Joby saying a stat and saying that was your job. I, I know that you think of yourself as better than just stats, so I was surprised to hear you peddle that narrative. Ever since Barry Glendening called me a stats nerd on uh, Football Weekly, I've always thought that's the that's the look I'm going for. That's why I started wearing glasses as well, although the, the listeners don't know that because I take them off for, for our TV appearances. You don't even wear <laughs> your I'll glasses because you, um, you're worried you get slagged off, as Charlie Nicholas yeah. famously said to Jeff Stelling. Yeah, call me four eyes and I'll come after you. Um, but it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, th- th- there are some concerns... I mean, I don't want to repeat myself again and again, but you look at the, the players who played key roles here. You've got Green Edwards getting two assists, who hasn't played very much recently. You've got Humphreys coming in from the cold and Humphreys scoring a brilliant goal coming in up front. Shinny making his first start in centre midfield. Wigan's squad is the squad in the in League One that is big enough and good enough to cope with um, the amount of games they've got coming up. It's, it's more the performance levels that is, is a bit of an issue. But first half, they were very good. Second half, they were pretty poor. Um, but as is often the, the way with Wigan this season, um, when they are level going into the, the, the latter stages of the game, they find a way to get that goal to get the three points. And they are now unquestionably in pole position to to win the division. But I do think they are going to have to improve because, as I mentioned before, you know they might start beating teams more comfortably. But I think if they carry on the way they are at the moment, not the first half, the current plan that they, were, that they did in the first half, they'll be fine. Um, but if they carry on, you know, the, the level of dominance over the opposition recently has probably been slighter than teams like Sunderland and Rotherham, although Rotherham themselves aren't playing great at the moment. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it's definitely been a shift recently to, in my eyes, of seeing Wigan is now probably the most likely team to win the division. Mm. The League One top goalscorer race is interesting. Ross Stewart's on 18, Cole Stockton 17, Michael Smith 15, Will Keane 14, Taylor and Bon and Ironside on 12. But I want to raise a sub-award, which is even more interesting, and that is League One's golden head. Headed Mm, goals. Nice. Love it. Seven for Will Keane, seven for Michael Smith. Uh, They're locked in there. Keane, excellent in the air. I just quite like Keane because he's a player that, on paper, doesn't really make much sense. He's tall, he's really good in the air, but he kind of plays a bit of a second striker role. Him and Nick Powell, I think, probably both fit the bill here. He's not as good on the ball as Nick Powell. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> but he is technical and he's he's not a huge creator, but he's a good link player. Um, and yeah, he's a, he's been excellent this season. 14 goals, four assists. Only Michael Smith and Bursant Selina have a better non-penalty goals and assists per 90 rate. And Selina's only started 10 games as well. So um, a, a, a probably a slightly under the radar League One star of the season, Will Keane. 
Uh, he's 27. He's never started, or until last season, he had never started more than 14 games in a league season. He's had a rotten time with injury in his career, um, mostly spending his time on the sidelines cheering on brother Michael Keane, who's reached almost the very top of the game, of course, and pulled on an England shirt. Uh, Will Keane doing just fine in a Latic shirt so far this season. Morecambe 3, Wickham 2. For some reason, the, the footballing alchemy of this fixture is just perfect because at Adams Park, <laughs> we saw a 4-3 crazy game. This one, 3-2. And it's it's not lost on me that I gleefully nicknamed Wickham the boa constrictors of League One last, last week, George, such as their vice-like grip on any lead that they take. And then they lost this match having been ahead twice to a team in the relegation zone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that sort of raises a, a separate point that I think we have made but probably is a time to make it a bit stronger. Wickham, because they've had the same manager for so long and because they're so well established and their progression up the footballing pyramid is is so consistent. And one of the things that's personified them has been structure, shape, you know, defending leads and, and good, solid defensive structure. They're, they're pretty shaky defensively, not nearly as solid as you'd expect. And that's backed up by... Goals conceded, underlying numbers, anything else you want to look at. Um, conceding three here to Morecambe, in part because Morecambe played really well. You know, I talked about shrimp spirit when I picked them to stay up over Fleetwood in our mid-season predictions. Demonstrated here, but not just spirit getting them over the line. A, a genuinely good display as well. And crucial to their success, if it comes from this point, will be uh, you know reducing the reliance on Cole Stockton for goals and... Ayunga could be the man to help do that. He had nine shots here playing off the right wing. Really direct, skillful, uh, high-volume shooter. There's probably a sense that him and Stockton aren't the best mix realistically because both of them just want to get the ball, beat a man and shoot. But he did provide a lovely assist for Stockton uh, for the winning goal as well. Ayunga probably the, the star man for Morecambe, even with Stockton scoring the winner and making sure his name was on the headlines as well. So big win for Morecambe there. A couple of others here, George. Uh, Rotherham 1, Cheltenham 0. Uh, what was interesting here? Probably a foul for the goal. What that, do you think? That, I'm intrigued to know what you think. That is interesting. Um, I hadn't seen anyone suggest it was a foul in my sort of general Saturday afternoon Twittering and NTT20 mm. squadding and stuff, I just heard that Michael Smith won the battle with Will Boyle. Bullied and Boyle. I thought, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing that later because, you know, that's uh, irresistible object and immovable force. And <laughs> when I watched it, I, I my initial reaction was, hey, he's just fouled him though, hasn't he? He's just pulled, <laughs> yeah. he's just pulled him back so that he can get round onto the ball. <laughs> Um, yeah, I agree. I think it's a foul. Um, I love that I think... you've, you've coaxed me into talking about refereeing decisions and then you've just giggled Again. away. It's like Christmas come early for you. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's a class. You, you compare that, and I'm really sorry to do this, and I hope no oh, one was watching last I night. But you compare, you compare Boyle's um, reaction to Thiago Silva's reaction yesterday for Chelsea, um, and you can see, I think, if Boyle literally just falls over, it's given as a foul, and it's still nil-nil. Um, uh but, you know, what do we say? Credit to him. You know, what's Mike Duff going to say to him, uh, a defender himself? Is he going to say, why didn't you go down? Or is he going to applaud him for being an honest pro and staying on his feet and trying to, to stop Smith from scoring? Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Um, it was it was decent centre forward play either way from Smith. Um, even if it was a foul, you know, he had to do what he could to try and turn that situation into a goal. If it was given a foul, fair enough. But it wasn't. And he's it's a smart finish for him to get the goal as well. Interesting to see that Freddie Ladapo started so a lot of Rotherham fans in the last couple of weeks laying some of the blame um, of their recent poor performances at the feet of Ladapo, saying that he was a 
a bad influence, poisonous in the in the camp. Having somebody who's asked to leave, Warner said that so long as his attitude is okay, he'll continue to be selected or in the mind for selection. Um, and he was pretty ineffective here, but either way, um, his presence didn't seem to be too much of an issue. Um, again, Rotherham still not at their best, I wouldn't say, um, but doing enough to get a win, which could spark something um, because, yeah, there's definitely been a dip in performance recently. Uh, they got crew away next weekend, which maybe is a you know a fair fixture for them to try and find that earlier season. Well, not early season form, just form from a couple of weeks ago, really. Sunderland won Portsmouth nil. This was the eleventh time these two teams have played against each other in three years and one month, um, with a lot of uh, other competitions as well as the regularly scheduled twice seasonly league games, and they've almost all been pretty tight, haven't they? Um, this one one nil to Sunderland. It sounds like it was an exceptionally even contest, to be honest, without either team dominating, without either team creating a huge amount of chances. Um, it took a mistake, and it was a mistake I was surprised to see by Hayden Carter at the back for Portsmouth, just getting overrun by the Sunderland press, uh, a mixture of, of players, Embleton one of them for sure, and then Ross Stewart um, passing it to Embleton, and such a lovely early finish from Embleton with his left foot. Uh, across the goalkeeper into the far corner. The reason I was surprised is because I went to Wimbledon against Pompey uh, on Tuesday and Hayden Carter was man of the match in that 0-0, uh, obviously on loan from Blackburn, only joined a couple of weeks ago, excellent at this level with Burton last season. He's big, uh, he fits the bill of what the Cowleys want in their defenders first and foremost, which is to defend their box, dare I say be a big threat from set pieces as well. He's all of those things. Uh, and against Wimbledon, playing as an outside centre-back on the right side, he was clearly the most confident on the ball. He was Portsmouth's most effective player just in terms of playing good forward passes um, and I was really impressed so to see him dallying on the ball tripping over the ball not shrugging off um, you know oncoming attacking players pressing him uh, and being at fault for the goal which lost his team the game was was surprising and I'm sure he will learn from that um, not a huge amount else to say here other than for Sunderland it, it kind of reminded me a bit of that Ipswich game they had where they won 2-1 uh, 2-0 I think it was actually in the end wasn't it with that strange penalty at the end where it was very even game uh, that they've come out the, the right side of at home. So um, important for them because we always bring up the streaky Lee thing. And I think it's fair to point out that, you know, they were witnessing three before this. It was two draws and a defeat. So probably not, a, not didn't fit the criteria for a streaky Lee streak. But if they'd lost here, maybe it would have, maybe it would have done and we probably would have mentioned it. So uh, this was a, a streak breaker. So well done then. And have you seen they've been linked today to Jack Clark? as well which is interesting okay on loan how so many are... attacking midfielders plus wingers can they play at any given time because they've just 11. signed patrick roberts they've yeah. got and i know they haven't always played an attacking midfield or winger wingers roles because they've played wing backs as well they've got gooch de yaku who've played a lot of wing back minutes but who naturally are probably wingers they've got embleton and pritchard as well i i, I just wonder whether they could spread some of this quite eye-catching January recruitment into other areas of the pitch. Anyway, uh, that would be very excited. I'm looking forward to seeing Patrick Roberts if he can get fit. George, Oxford 3, Sheffield Wednesday 2. Yellows behind twice in this one and staring at three defeats in a row if they'd lost. That would have meant that Wednesday had been level on points with Oxford as well if they'd won this game. And, you know, Oxford would have been looking like they're on the slide. But snatching a win from behind and now there's six points between the two sides and you're feeling a little more comfy i dare say yeah and it was a a, a carl robinson tactical tweak 
akin to the Steve Cooper one. Um, but this time it was because Sheffield Wednesday started the game so strongly. Oxford couldn't really get into it at all. Carl's normally fairly, well, he's not tactically rigid, but he certainly doesn't often switch from a back four to a back three, but he did that, pushing, moving Sam Long into the middle of the three and uh, Mark Sykes as a right wing back and Seddon as a left wing back, um, bringing Sam Whittle on um, late in the second half to play up top with Matt Taylor and it worked because Oxford were far better. Sheffield Wednesday probably looked the more likely to, to win the game um, at two all for the last half hour. Um, but it was Winnell from a corner, a brilliant corner from Billy Bowden. Um, and Winnell heading in, Winnell, of course, against his former club, Sheffield Wednesday. And you could tell that it meant a lot to him uh, with the celebrations as well. His first goal of the season, he struggled with injuries. Um, you know, Oxford have had a couple of games recently. The 3-2 defeat against Wigan at home being the most similar to this, where they were probably the better side and ended up being caught out late by James McLean goal to lose the game 3-2. They'll feel like this is... Um, just rewards for that where they probably look like the side who if either were going to come away with nothing but end up getting all three points and in fairness Oxford saw out the game very well as well um, in that last five or ten minutes after the goal uh, interestingly despite reports that Jordan Thornley is set to be recalled by Blackpool seemingly as just a means of Blackpool to be annoyed with Oxford for not selling them Cameron Brannigan uh, he actually played on the left hand side of the back three here so um, I'm not sure if that is still the case I was quite surprised to see him in the in the starting lineup for Sheffield Wednesday it's, it's such an annoying one for Darren Moore because he'll feel like they played very well Matt Taylor said after the game that they were the best team that they've played at the Kassam Stadium this season but the fans won't care because it's another defeat and it's another goal conceded late on in the game to, to yeah. drop points well, we mentioned Luongo and Windas last week as being players who, in theory, should be excellent at this level but haven't stayed fit this season. Um, both of them involved in excellent Wednesday goals here. That didn't escape mm. my attention. I, I'm hoping to see more uh, attacking play like that. Uh, how about MK Dons nil, Doncaster 1. Donny's first away win of the season. It leaves only Barnsley <laughs> as a team in the EFL whose travelling fans haven't seen a victory. And shout out to any Doncaster fan who'd been to the previous 13 away games in which uh, their team had scored seven goals and conceded 33, I think, failed to score in over half of those. Um, shout out to any Donny fan that went to all 13. Rewarded here with uh, a, a surprise win at MK Dons, which went pretty much the way you'd have expected if I told you that Donny were going to beat MK Dons 1-0 this weekend. It was a nice goal kind of out of nothing from Dodu, a bit of individual quality to come inside off the flank and, and fire into the corner. Uh, and then they needed a mixture of poor finishing from Dons and some good saves from Jones in goal and some heroic defending, probably most excitingly, from debutant Ollie Younger, who signed from Sunderland uh, in the week. Centre-back that I think some Sunderland fans are a bit disappointed to see leave on a permanent. Uh, he finished the game with a Terry Butcher uh, head dressing which we've seen quite a lot of recently, a lot of heads on the line. Uh, and he was, their, he was their star man, really. Uh, so a big win for Donny. And, and it kind of sums up, I think, what we said about MK last week, where a bit confusingly this season, they seem to win games impressively that maybe last season you would not have expected them to. And then equally, they'll, they'll chuck in a home defeat against Doncaster. So quite a hard one to put your finger on. And, you know, their fans, I think overall, must be pretty happy with how things have gone, given their manager walked out on them the week before the start of the season. And yet there'll be a sense that they could be even better um, if, they could just, if they could just up their level by 10%, 20% in some of these games. Uh, George, how about Plymouth 1-Lincoln 2? Because you called this one on the betting show, and I know you love talking about Lincoln right now. You've got some good points. <laughs> 
yeah, I mean, they left it pretty late, uh, having gone one nil, one nil down. Um, but interesting, interesting to see John Marquis getting his first start and getting his first goal. Um, the kind of goal I think Lincoln have struggled to score all season because they haven't had a striker. Um, Anthony Scully has been the closest thing to it, but it was a very different role for him playing on the left-hand side in a kind of 4-4-1-1 or a 4-4-2, depending on where you see Cullen playing either behind Marquis or alongside him. Um, just some great wing play, not something we've really seen from him. So a really good bit of pace on the ball, getting down the left-hand side, getting his head up, putting in a perfect ball to Marquis to, to poke home from close range. And then, um, yeah, scoring an injury time, Max Melbourne getting his first goal for the club from a from a set piece. Um, but as I say, I mean, this is my biggest view at the moment um, in probably the whole of the EFL is that Lincoln are a, a side to watch now. Um, their team is, is much better than it was. I'm not entirely sure why Josh Griffiths, I think, had an injury, but I'm not sure why um, Chris Maguire wasn't even in the squad for this one, which is a bit of a concern because I think he should, well, as he's shown in the re- in recent weeks, he has a big role to play in this decent Lincoln side. But Whitaker on the right-hand side was decent again, Cullen playing in behind. You know, when I've looked at Lincoln so many times this season, you've just wondered where the goals are going to come from. Um, but that is quite clearly not the case now. They have so much attacking flair in their side. Um, you know, even a midfield two of McGrandles and Fiorini with Scully and Whitaker either side and Cullen and Marquis up front. I mean, that that is, you know, it's not quite Morgan Rogers and Brennan Johnson, but it, it is very, very good. Um, Weak and they, at the knees right now, you are. They went, to, yeah, they went to Argyle and um, who are still, a, you know, I know the change of manager and I know that things haven't been quite as good under Stephen Schumacher, but that's still a, a very, very impressive performance and result. They were unlucky not to beat Cambridge in the game. They lost 1-0 late on at home, um, but they've won three of their last four and those three have come against Oxford, Sunderland and, and Argyle. So, I mean, they probably have too much to do, don't they, to, to kind of get in you know, their 16th now with a couple of games in hand on some sides. Uh, 15 points off the playoffs. We always do see one side coming off the pace in League One and League Two to to challenge for the playoffs, and I I wouldn't be surprised if it is them. But with teams above them like Ipswich and Sheffield Wednesday playing very well and already with far more points on the board, I think it'll be too much. But um, yeah, Lincoln are, are the team for me who I would upgrade the most so far due to their January business. Is that a horse racing term? Come off the pace to challenge. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Horses. I mean, yes. And given that if we're talking horses, Lincoln have basically been off the bridle for the first half and you've, you you know, you were ready to watch them get pulled up, but suddenly they're back on the bit and you're wondering, hold on, hold on, <laughs> and what, we're back on the bridle here. <laughs> what do horses love to eat more than anything? Hey. Apples. <laughs> ah, nice. That's good. They're making hay. They're eating apples. Cambridge yeah. one, crew nil. George, amazing January, you have to say, for Cambridge United so far. They've won five games in a row. Uh, but it was another month that made the difference here. Adam May. Decent decent hit. Deflected, decent hit. Mm-hmm. But um, Yeah, I mean, it feels with Cambridge, it's not really that worth getting too caught up in, in the match itself because, as is often the case with Cambridge, they by no means... Um, dominated proceedings against crew crew themselves had chances Mitov made some excellent saves but mark bonner has this incredible knack of in tight games getting cambridge ahead and when that whistle is blown um the same was the case again uh five wins in all competitions in a row is is incredibly impressive they are getting the points on the board to to ensure they're going to be a league one side next season um you know we would be a fool to to say that 
things are going to turn because they've been doing it for 18 months now. Um, it is amazing what they're doing. And um, yeah, no, no iron side, no problem here. Damn right. And Charlton, who got a big win, four without one before this 2-0 win at home to Fleetwood. Uh, the opener coming from a, a set piece, which was nodded down by Innes. He is so tall that set pieces become a completely different prospect when you have Ryan Innes in your team. Um, and it was finished by Mason Burstow, who is a young academy product striker, scores a lot of goals in the youth teams and has got his chance from Johnny Jackson, has taken it here with a, with a really nicely taken goal inside the box. Um, and Albie Morgan got the second final goal, the clincher, the doubler. And I thought that was quite, quite important as well, or quite notable because Morgan's someone who, you know, we went to... Charlton Wimbledon in the Carabao at the start of the season and aside from meeting Torrey Andre Flo the most notable thing was uh, Albie Morgan's performance uh, in midfield for Charlton I just felt like he was really uh, we just had so much quality and so much vision and was trying to make things happen on the ball and produced one of only or well, a couple of moments of quality that Charlton really lacked that day I, I sort of gather that Overall, there are there are questions about how how consistently he impacts games, which in a central midfield role you do need consistency of performance within games. Um, how much he sort of channels his energy in the wrong way sometimes as well. And I think that the sense was, yeah, Ali might be blinded by some of the things that he can do on the ball, but you know, being a central midfielder at this level is about more than that. So it's pleasing to see him start the last two games. Um, there, there's a, a sense, I guess, with Gilby on the bench that Morgan's probably applied himself pretty well uh, and and earned his chance, and he's taken it. Um, scored a nice goal here, a, a player that I'd, I'd like to see develop because I think he, he does have a lot of quality. Also hasn't escaped me, George, that Charlton's midfield three, just 100% cheeky chaps, right? You've got Elliot Lee, uh, you've got George Dobson, you've got Albie Morgan. You've got Albie Morgan born in Rochester, George Dobson born in Romford, and Elliot Lee born in Durham because his dad Rob Lee was playing for Newcastle at the time, but he's Essex through and through as well, um, which I enjoyed. Seems. Would you compare them to their cheeky chappy manager Johnny Jackson as well um, would we call JJ cheeky chappy yes okay he's cheeky and he's a chap so yes well and he was an excellent midfield player so there you go correct um, do you want to talk about Ipswich 2 Accrington 1 or Shrewsbury 0 Bolton 1 let's talk about Ipswich uh, Aki great because you've got to feel sorry for Accrington here um, in my book uh, Ipswich Interestingly, James Norwood dropped the bench. Still some suggestion that he could be on his way um, this window. They've recalled Tyree Simpson, although we don't know if that is. Um, I've seen some suggestion that they've recalled him in order to loan him back out again, but I'm not entirely sure where they would loan him out to, given that you know they're not going to loan him to a top half league one side. Um, in Swindon, they had a, a team who were creating a lot of chances and he was scoring a lot of goals. So unless they want to loan him out to a struggling side in league one, which doesn't really make much sense, unless they're planning on selling him, um, a bit of an odd one, but there's still some suggestion that a lot of teams are in for Norwood. Um, and it was interesting to see him being dropped to the bench for Accrington, took the lead through Ethan Hamilton, a decent goal. And then just literally 30 seconds before Wes Burns equalized for Ipswich, um, Walton pulled off one of the saves of the season so far um, to tip the ball uh, onto the bar after a deflection. Uh, and then Ipswich go the other end and score to make it one all. Sam Morsi should have been sent off. Mm, can we mention a beautiful assist from Bursant Salina there? Yeah, great. An unbelievably good ball. Thank you. A def- that, that is the definition of a defence splitter, I would say. Uh, and a good finish from Burns as well. Um, but yeah, Ipswich should have then been down to 10 men. 
Um, it's a classic case of everybody who sees it thinks it's a punch and, and a red card, except for Ipswich fans who shockingly say there's nothing in it and say it shouldn't have been. But Morsi runs past Hamilton, literally gives him a little right right jab to the to the chin and carries on running. Why? I'm not entirely sure. And then the narrative is complete when the goal itself comes from a Hamilton foul on Morsi. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then a quick free kick is taken and a brilliant finish from from Connor Chaplin um, to make it 2-1. So a, a big win for Kieran McKenna and his Ipswich side, making their, um, you know, making their talent count, I would say, with key contributions from the likes of Selena Burns and Chaplin, three quality players at this level. But if you're um, John Coleman, you're probably feeling a little bit aggrieved. Not only did their performance deserve more, but they'll feel like they could have been 2-0 up if it wasn't for one incredible stop from Orton. And then they'll feel like it should have been eleven against ten for the for the whole of the um well for for the for sixty odd minutes of the game. So um yeah, difficult for them to take, but a big three points for Ipswich, who still believe that they can force their way into the promotion reckoning and, and rightly so. We still believe I'm finding it quite hard to put my finger on Ipswich at the moment. So it's lucky, isn't it, that we're seeing them in the flesh at Plough Lane tomorrow night. Sam Ooh. Morsey and Co. Uh, at Wimbledon, it'd be nice to, to to watch them live and you know just really get the measure of them. Well, will you be wearing your glasses? I'll have them on me. I don't know. I'll be wearing mine, so we'll be in disguise. No one's ever seen us, okay. either of us, with our glasses on. We could be double. These guys in disguise. Big game of Where's Wallies <laughs> at uh, Wimbledon yeah. tomorrow. Shrewsbury nil, Bolton one. Again, if you're feeling bad for Accrington, I'm feeling quite bad for Shrews here because I believe the performance was pretty good. Uh, they chipped away at Bolton all game without creating tons of clear-cut chances, but but generally having the better of the game, I'd say some poor finishing uh, letting them down. Bolton by no means were, were dominated here. I don't want that to come across. They they had a few forays themselves, and it's great to see Dion Charles looking sharp now. He's got his match fitness back after you know doing nothing for half of a season, um, but very very lively even before scoring a wonderful injury time winner into the top corner from the edge of the box. There's a couple of, uh, you know, alternative angles, fans in the stand filming the goal, and it's worth watching every single one. Brilliant moment from the weekend. Uh, a lot of late winners in, in League One, wasn't there, with Lincoln and Oxford to an extent. Yeah. Bolton's was the most exciting. And it had been over five games without conceding before that from Shrews. It was it was going to take something special, and it was a great week for Bolton, you have to say, after beating Ipswich in midweek as well. Uh, no, last weekend, wasn't it? They beat Ipswich. So keep an eye on this Bolton side, which is what I said last Monday. In League Two, we're going to start, and I'm sure this is the first time this season, with Colchester United. Firstly, because there's a news angle. Secondly, because there's a match angle. There's a goals win angle. Goals and win against Salford. 3-0 up in... Can I say up in Manchester? You went to uni there. Can I say up in Manchester or do I have to say no, Salford? Up in Greater Manchester. Up in Greater Manchester, up in Salford, up near Manchester. Good news is well. we've never heard anything from a Salford fan in the three years they've been in League Two, either online. If you are a Salford fan who listens to this, could you let us know that you are there, please? Because if not, we may as well start covering you. Well, how about Colchester United? The news angle is that Hayden Mullins was sacked a couple of days before this one. The second news angle was that Wayne Brown was on interim speed dial once again. He, of course, filled in 
not not far off this time last season when Steve Ball was sacked before Hayden Mullins was appointed. Brown made four changes here. Uh, Cole Ewood lost five in a row. They hadn't won away since the 10th of September and they mashed up Salford 3-0 here. Really, 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 really good stuff. And, uh, you know, we've been so down on them and I'm loath to start going so up on them. But quite frankly, with Oldham and Scunthorpe losing, it does give them some lovely breathing room. Uh, and Wayne Brown will rightly be delighted. Did you know that they can now field an entire 11 of former Ipswich Town players or those currently on loan from Ipswich Town? No way. One of them being Miles Kenlock. And is the, that true? The 11 actually works as well, which is the best part of it. Um, you can actually put it That's into a, a formation that looks you know, relatively workable. And Wayne Brown, of course, <laughs> himself started his career, uh, his playing career at Ipswich. Yeah, Gherkin in goal. Chambers, Eastman, Smith and Kenlock, back four. Midfield, pivot of Skews and Hughes. Uh, Dobra and Judge out wide and Sears and Nuble up front, all former Ipswich players. It's a Madness. remarkable uh, way of running your football club, but why not? Uh, well, I can make loads of cases as to why not, but I'm not going to do that now. <laughs> uh, their first two goal scorers, Miles Kenlock, on loan from Ipswich Town, and Luke Chambers, who played just shy of 400 games for Ipswich Town. Uh, breathing room as mentioned, and a, a surprise win, a, a great day for Cole, you fans who haven't had many this season. As for Forest Green at the top of the league, I get worried every week that we're not going to have anything new to say about them. They're miles clear at the top. Got a game in do hand Do you have anything well. new to say? I do. That was, that was going to be my... The set. I was going to I was gonna set it up as if I didn't. You and then teased like, it so well I couldn't wait to hear the answer. But I do. A mo, a mass, a mat. <laughs> There's a Twitter account called Fox Analytics FC. It covers Carlisle with some really nice stats and analysis, like proper in-depth stuff, which I love. And they shared pass maps of both teams in this Forest Green Carlisle game. Forest Green's pass map is one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. It's like the network of players, their average positions and the passes between them. It's the it's the three five two dream. It's absolutely beautiful. You have to go and check out Fox Analytics FC and certainly give them a follow if you want some some more in depth stats uh, in depth stats on Carlisle. Uh, the the main point was Jake Young who's a Forest Green player, 20-year-old, played in the 10 role today. As mentioned, Ibu Adams offer AFCON, uh, and it's Aitchison and Young that, that kind of vying for, for spot as his backup. Mostly it's been Aitchison this season, but Young got the opportunity. And it struck me that because Forest Green have been quite fortunate with injuries this season and because they've got such a uh, an incredible system and, and key personnel, if you look at the minutes played, they've basically only used about 14 players this season. And it makes it hard for players like Josh March, the striker, like Jake Young, uh, like Diallo in midfield to get any minutes, really. Uh, but Young started here and he's a lively player. Former Sheffield United uh, youngster, played in the 10 role. He's skillful. He can carry it, takes loads of shots as well. He was involved in some of the goals here, um, played really well. And it made me feel like if Ibu Adams does move to Blackpool, uh, as is fairly heavily rumoured, They'll probably be fine in the 10 position with Young and Aitchison rotating. Very different players. Definitely lacking, um, you know, off the ball compared to Adams, who just goes around snapping at heels. You know, less physicality, less pressing, less ball winning for sure. Less threat in the air, which Adams provides arriving late into the box. But great attacking threats, both of them in, in different ways. So uh, there's my Forest Green analysis. Why don't you give me some Crawley nil, Tranmere 1 analysis? I'm not sure there is a lot, but go for it. Well, no. I mean, that's the um, the two, the two, well, the three sides: Forest Green, Tranmere, and um, and uh, Mansfield. It's it's hard to really know what you can say. Tranmere win a game again, 
Um, Tranmere keep a clean sheet again. 15 clean sheets in 26 games this season. They haven't conceded a goal for 13 hours of football now. And often you look at the game and you wonder how. But this, in this case, they were very good defensively. Sam Foley, a midfielder by trade, playing at centre-back alongside Peter Clark and probably being one of their best players, if not the best on the day. Jay Spearing gets credited the goal. It was definitely an own goal. Um, it was kind of like a, a cross-come shot into the near post, which uh, I'm not sure which defender it was. But they kind of inexplicably slide and divert into the goal with seemingly no one really around them. It feels to me like Tranmere and Mickey Mellon are, are, are pretty blessed at the moment um, when it comes to, to winning games of football and to not conceding goals. But they're getting enough, you know, we're getting to that stage of the season where points on the board matter and they're getting so many points on the board that it's hard to really see them falling away massively from this from this spot. And in fairness to them, Crawley, as we know, under John Yems, um, going to Crawley is not an easy game and they managed to suffocate Crawley in a way that we haven't seen too many teams do. So credit to them for that. Um but surely they're going to concede some goals soon. It's it's that's absolutely mad. They've conceded one in their last thirteen hours and four minutes of league football. Per Matt Jones on Twitter, uh, did it on the weekend with Sam Foley, a midfielder playing at centre half. He's probably their man of the match. With Davies out injured, um, third versus fourth was Sutton Northampton. It looked like the big game, just in, in league table turns. Uh, it was a nil all draw. I, I kind of suspect. For both sides, that's an acceptable result. It, it does mean that Forest Green and Tramier with their wins pulling further ahead. Um, I can't tell you how much joy the NTT20 squad gives me in general, but in particular, our League 2 group thread. It's absolutely sensational. The match previews <laughs> and the reports are amazing. Uh, if you want to get to know League 2 better, uh, then please do join, even if it's just for the two-week free trial uh, and then you don't join up for the month uh, for the monthly fee after that like you'll get so much just from the next two weeks uh f- from the guys in there uh we've got a fan of i think 18 of the 24 in league two in there which is great and it, it's you know all of them willing to discuss their teams in detail and it's it's excellent uh, you can join up the entity 20 squad link in the description of this podcast or the bio on our twitter account the reason i brought this up specifically is that there's a newport county fan called dan on there who who just gives us such good info about the way things are going at Newport under James Robry and has massively contributed, George, to both of us developing a pretty large footballing man crush on him. Dan wrote on on Friday pre-game about Robry's press conference that it was interesting to hear him provide some context as to why he has changed between a five at the back and a four at the back so frequently. He says it all depends on how high the opposition press. Against a team that presses higher, he likes a five to give us more options at the back but with a team that prefers to sit back, he feels the four is better suited. Expect plenty more chopping and changing for the rest of the season. It was also interesting to hear him say that the most important stat to him is our XG for and against, and that is something he looks at closely all the time. I mean, I love the tactical stuff probably more than the XG stuff. I love discussing the three at the back and four at the back systems, and particularly the options that they give or take away in terms of build-up. That's basically what Robri's talking about there. Against a team that's going to put a lot of pressure on your build-up in your defensive third, it makes sense to have what you know what they call a three-two build-up with three centre backs and two midfielders offering, and the wing backs, of course, um, holding the the high width. The centre backs outside the the well, the outside centre backs can give you obviously great coverage it, it, across the pitch as well. Um, but against a team that's just going to sit in, what's the point really? You, you need that extra number or it might be better suited to have that extra number higher up the pitch if there's going to be no issue anyway building the ball up um, in your own defensive third. So I love that. I dare say there'll be people listening to this pod who don't feel their manager is as thoughtful about opposition presses and about changes of formation 
as that and that that has to be something of a positive um, and for him to only be three months into his first management job and seemingly so on top of things is excellent and if it is XG that he likes George he must be loving life because Newport are racking up insane attacking numbers at the moment uh, Y Scout XG numbers are, are not always the most uh, definitive compared to your like your opters um, but I don't get individual game XG for League 2 uh, anywhere other than Y Scout so looking at that the only team to keep them under one expected goal generated in the last three months was Yemsey's men, Crawley Town. Otherwise, Newport have been having their way with a number of teams. And they've and they battered Scunthorpe here. It was a 1-0 battering, even with both teams missing a penalty. Uh, I think the first half, you know, Rory Watson in the Scunthorpe goal should have been given a medal as he exited <laughs> the pitch because he'd been excellent. Um, and Dan added after the game, he'd be pretty worried if he was a Scunny fan. Going forwards, they showed barely any threat and weren't much better at the back either. And if it wasn't for Watson, it could have been three or four at half time. Um, so after a tiny bit of bit of positivity for Scunny when Keith Hill first joined, uh, they look like they've really regressed. Uh, I'm going to ask you to say something about Mansfield then. You've told me you're finding it difficult, but they've won seven in a row. They've won nine of their last ten. They went to Barrow, and after eight seconds, Reese Oates dribbled from kickoff and had a shot which was tipped wide. He then scored from the corner. One minute gone, one nil up. Oates so simple. <laughs> Very good. Uh, it was, and then they um, they conceded to go one to make it one all. Scored from another set piece to make it two one. Had a man sent off. Um, Farron Rawson sent off for, for two pretty blatant yellow, yellow cards and you know that is probably the biggest difficulty here for Barrow is that up against 10 men at home 2-1 behind for over a half for football and they couldn't really get themselves back into the game it was Jordan Barry instead who made it 3-1 you know <clears throat> this Barrow side are massively underperforming at the moment and I do wonder if Mark Cooper's future there as we've said a lot at the beginning of the season even though they were seen as being relegation candidates. Barrow's owners certainly felt like the investment they made in the club over the over the pre-season um, break should have made them challengers for the top end of the table. And Cooper was part of that. But they are a side who are so poor going forward. Um, and Mansfield were, were able to brush them aside even with 10 men, which is not good. But Mansfield's ridiculous form continues. Absolutely unbelievable what they're doing. And... Um, the stag party rolls on. Yes, it does. Sam, who is a Stags fan on the NTT20 squad, pointing out that their bench looking really strong as well. Another point of excitement for Stags fans. Um, Steck, the subkeeper, Nati, defender Charlesley Lapsley, who've both been excellent at times over the last year for Mansfield. Law, who's looked dangerous in, in cameos. Lucas Aikens, of course, a new signing, joining up with Cluffy once again, uh, where they were so, so good at Burton together. Uh, and DJ Danny Johnson up front, uh, also on the bench at the moment. Uh, Mark Cooper was pretty furious. Uh, he really dug out his centre-backs here, understandably so. To some extent, all of the goals from set plays and he just kept saying, uh, if you can't head the ball away from a set piece, then you, you, you can't do anything. So he was really laying the blame at the, at the door of his centre-backs, um, particularly, I think, Jones and Platt. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see how they respond there. Uh, Harrogate beat Oldham 3-0. A hat-trick from Jack Muldoon, whose name always makes me think of the song by The View called Distant Doubloon. You can picture me every time Jack Muldoon scores, picture 17-year-old me just absolutely vibing to that back in 2000. <laughs> yeah, um, a great hat-trick as well. He hadn't scored since mid-October and, you know, it's never ideal when one of your key strikers um, 
the goals straight up but for Harrogate they've had to deal with both Armstrong and Muldoon at the same time being going through some pretty brutal um droughts but Muldoon you know the the second and third goals were both brilliantly taken Armstrong does very well for the third amazing feat from Muldoon for the second goal to get out of his feet and that bit of acceleration to get away as well um for Oldham that is Selim Benashur's uh last game in charge with guess who taking over at Oldham for the sixth time in his managerial career John Sheridan is now Oldham manager and obviously for many reasons I hate it because it is a, a fairly um you know it's 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 just the most predictable managerial appointment we've seen um I used to think Sheridan was a bit of a wizard at this kind of stuff but his the jobs he did at Swindon and, and Wigan suggest anything but it feels like the game may have moved on a little bit however if there's one set of fans and one club where Sheridan he, he knows the club well and the fans certainly know what he is about there's gonna be no surprises when it comes to his his manner or the way he does stuff or the football that he plays than it is Oldham where he's had some serious success in the past so it would be some story if if this is you know Sheridan's return to the limelight is to save Oldham uh, at this stage um I, I don't think I can really see it though I couldn't agree more. I sort of initially winced. I got very little time for the job that John Sheridan did at Swindon last season, albeit accepting that things were, were falling apart off the pitch uh, with the previous owner. Uh, and yet, as Kieran, who's on the squad, Oldham fan, he points out he's got a 100% survival rate in two relegation battles with us. One of them came back from 11 points um, off safety and the other 14 points. He loves the fans and the fans love him. That's actually, in the situation they're in, not a bad starting point for a manager. No, exactly. So, I agree. Go, I agree. Uh, and the Matt Taylor derby was Walsall against Exeter and Matt Taylor won 2-0. The Greek Matt Taylor um, rather than the baby-faced Matt Taylor with the nice left foot. Uh, both goals from set plays here. If Mark Cooper was upset about Barrow's set-piece defending, I dare say uh, baby-faced Matt Taylor with the nice left foot was pretty upset with Walsall's offering on that front. Exeter won't care. Uh, Dieng and Czech Diabate cashing in on on that poor set-piece marking. Diabate is a 20-year-old centre-back thrust into the team due to a fair few injuries at the back. Stood out against league leaders Forrest Green in that nil-nil a couple of midweeks ago. And now he scored in another clean sheet a week or two later. So that is someone absolutely on our radar. Exeter have turned around what was a, a poor run of form. They've got two wins and a draw in their last three. But Walsall are in, well, what Carlo Ancelotti would say is a bad moment right now. Uh, three defeats in a row. Every time there's a, a week or two of positivity or flashes of, of something being built and developed, uh, it seems to get sort of washed away. M- Matt Vale, a Walsall fan on the squad, saying we offered nothing yesterday. A very flat performance considering, with the exception of Miller for Shade, it was probably the strongest side we could have put out. So uh, all not well there. Lots of consternation about the match day experience, about uh, just on a number of levels, things just being a bit glum at, uh, at Walsall, of course, on the pitch. There hasn't been much to shout about for the last few years. And that endeth the podcast at one hour 40 given what happened over the weekend and given how long we spoke about a couple of those initial discussions in the championship i'm pretty happy with that i'd go as far as say it's one of my favorite pods we've ever done should we should we do that always at the end of a podcast just both review the podcast that we've we've just recorded be quite fun analysis of all the matches from the weekend and then analysis of the analysis (laughs) exactly anyway i've enjoyed it Um, i enjoyed it 
I enjoyed it too. And, and I'm excited to see you tomorrow at a football match live, which is good because I feel like I haven't been to enough live games this season because of busyness on Saturdays. So I'm, I'm and I haven't been to Plough Lane yet, which is great. So there I'm you go. Got some quite nice uh, food stalls. So don't eat before. Oh, and lo- and like genuinely at, in different bars in that stadium, we're talking like 10 different beer offerings as well. So there should be something for everyone. Crikey. Right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I obviously won't be drinking because we've got Sky on Friday. So. Yes. Me too. <laughs> Huge thank you to our sponsors, Betfair, for their amazing support of this podcast and just allowing us to take as much time as we need to really to research these pods and uh, to put them out as well it, it makes a huge difference uh, their support so big thanks to them uh, we'll be back again on thursday to preview the weekend fingers crossed for another full slate another throbbing docket uh, got a good game tonight in the championship got some midweek fair as well games on tuesday one game on wednesday in the champ too uh, so it's a, it's a it's a good week and we hope that you're going into it with uh, well, in high spirits like we are and and say hi if you're at Wimbledon Ipswich tomorrow if you see two guys that look vaguely like us but wear glasses two guy you are my Turkish delight apparently he's going to be the next technical director of Hull City I also I also said Turkish delight on Quest I need to stop saying it I'm going to go and buy myself a box of Turkish delights thanks for listening <laughs>